This is February 14th, 2010, and we are discussing the importance of one. This is the biblical concept of unity versus divine invitation theology. <clears throat> Before we get started, let's open in prayer. This is from the uh, inside cover of the uh, Art Scrolls Jerusalem Talmud, the prayer before study. May it be your will, Hashem our God, that a mishap may not come through us, and may we not stumble in a matter of law and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us, and may we not say regarding something which is Tameh that it is Tahor, and not regarding something which is Tahor that it is Tameh. And may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law, and we rejoice over them. For Hashem, Hashem grants wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes, that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. This is from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one immersion, one God and Father of us all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Messiah's gift. Again, that's Ephesians 4, 1 through 7. <clears throat> Recently, the Messianic movement uh, has been divided over an issue that divided believers in the first century, and that is Gentile inclusion. Uh, what part uh, do Gentiles have uh, within the congregation? What part do Gentiles have with regard to the Torah? Recently, there was a Messianic uh, teaching and publishing group that uh, revised their view regarding Gentiles' relationship to the Torah. Uh, in an apparent attempt to soften that change in their position, uh, they wrapped it into what they called a divine invitation, and what we'll call, uh, for the purpose of our study today, divine invitation theology. Divine invitation theology uses Acts 15 as its proof text in an attempt to explain that Gentiles are only obligated to the what they call moral commandments, plus four prohibitions. And the pro four prohibitions they define as Acts 15.20, Acts 15.29, and also Acts 21.25, the same four being listed in all three passages, just in slightly different order. On the other hand, divine invitation theology proposes that the remaining commandments, that is the 613 commandments of the Torah, uh, the traditional enumeration, are the obligation to Jews, uh, believing Jews and uh, all. This new, uh, this new theology opens up a first century debate. However, it's not the debate that the proponents of divine invitation theology, theology think it is. It's not a debate about what Gentiles must do as opposed to what Jews must do, but rather, can Gentiles be considered part of the covenant people of God? More importantly, and specifically, can Gentiles be a part of Israel? Biblical identity, 
has always been framed in what someone does. <coughs> Let me explain. Uh, <coughs> Hashem reveals himself to us in the Torah. He introduces himself to us by telling us what he does. Uh, first we see that he is the creator. And then we are shown that uh, by what he does, that he created all. We see that he is a friend. We're shown that, that he walks with man in the garden. We see that he is the judge. Genesis chapter 3, when he judges sin, he unequivocally maintains his standard of righteousness. We see that he's a covenant maker. Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, and others. He unilaterally strikes covenant with those of his choosing. We see that he is a covenant keeper. He remembers his promises across generations. Genesis chapter 15. We see it again in Genesis chapter uh, um, 22. In Genesis chapter 26, the, the God of Abraham, and he's the God of Isaac, and he's the God of Jacob, and that this covenant spans generations. He keeps his promises. This shows he's the covenant keeper. So we can see that we know, uh, and we know that our identity, our identity, not only as believers, but our identity as human beings is defined by what we do. Uh, having different standards of righteousness, that is having different covenant obligation, uh, directly impacts identity. Now this is what divine invitation theology does, is it creates different standards of righteousness. Now they, they protest and say this as a different standards, but the same standard. However, uh, one might say that uh, a standard uh, that is uh, applied to Jews and having a different set of, of rules, as it were, that apply to Gentiles, is having two different standards. It's not the same standard, no matter how much protestation uh, we might hear. So, and having two, and having multiple standards of righteousness, or different covenant obligation, directly impacts identity. Consider these classical identities. Christianity and Judaism both say, Jews who follow Jesus become Christians and are no longer obligated to the Torah, and they are no longer Jews. Christianity and Judaism both say, Gentiles who convert to Judaism become Jews, and are obligated to the, the Torah, the whole law. Uh, now, Christianity doesn't promote it, but it's what they say. Now, now go back to divine invitation theology. Divine invitation theology says, Jews who follow Messiah must keep the moral, plus the, what they call Jewish parts of the law, and Gentiles who follow Messiah keep only the moral parts of the law, plus four additional prohibitions. And both groups, ironically, can be seen and identified by what they do. Uh, and in divine invitation theology, maintains that a distinction is important. Uh, we would hold that uh, divine invitation theology, Christianity, and Judaism are and normative Judaism, are all wrong on this issue. Uh, the identity of the people of God should be one. The identity is defined by what they do and what Messiah has done for us. Uh, so we recognize our identity as being one identity, one citizenship. Maybe a little history in the his of the Gentile inclusion in the modern Messianic movement, which we would, we would say is probably less than 50 years old. When the modern Messianic movement emerged from uh, the Jewish evangelism organizations of the 1960s and 70s, uh, 
Much to the dismay of some of the Jewish leaders of those organizations, the majority of congregations that were coming out of that, organiz- of the, out of that movement had members that were Gentiles. The majority, were, the majority of the members were Gentiles. Not only that, the Gentiles more and more were adopting a Torah lifestyle, making them look, as far as the leaders were concerned, making them look Jewish. To some of these leaders, the Torah was merely a cultural identity. Some of them still operated within that dispensational mindset where there was no covenant obligation for keeping of the commandments, but rather as a matter of ethnic identity. It's important to re- retain elements of Torah lifestyle for the sake of that Jewish identity, what they would call Jewish identity. For example, uh, we, we, we celebrate Passover because we're Jewish. We celebrate, uh, we worship on Saturday, uh, the Shabbat, because we're Jewish, as opposed to it being a mandate of Scripture. Uh, Others, other Jewish leaders of Messianic congregations uh, considered uh, that the Torah, observ- that Torah observance was a covenantal obligation to Jewish people and Jewish people only. This group uh, sees and saw and sees Gentiles participating in Torah observance as a threat. Uh, as a threat in this way, because they have a desire to be more accepted within normative Judaism, which, by the way, has an extremely negative view of Gentiles living according to the Torah, uh, and hence they, they don't, uh, it makes them feel uneasy uh, when the Gentiles are encroaching upon this, what they consider Jewish identity and Jewish covenantal obligation. Divine invitation theology proponents, in an apparent move, uh, we can't know their motivation, but in an apparent move to appeal to a broader category of, of, of groups within the Messianic movement, uh, shifted their theology uh, to be more in line with uh, this second group that sees uh, Torah observance as a covenantal obligation for Jewish people only. Uh, That has earned them, in those groups, ostensibly has earned them uh, a little bit more uh, access, a little bit more acceptance in those uh, those, uh, camps that were specifically opposed to what... um, what they call one law theology. Now, one law theology is not something that Brian's online promo- uh, promotes or or uh, uh, considers itself a part of. Although some people might consider us a part of it, uh, we do not define it that way. Uh, one law theology says that God has created uh, that the Torah is is one law and it is for Jew and Gentile. We would agree with that. We simply don't uh, accept the uh, the label of being one law. Uh, however, uh, we would say that normative Judy, uh, or excuse me, uh, those those certain camps within Messianic Judaism, uh, particularly associated with um, uh, those those that are associated with uh, groups that um, uh, uh, believe that the Torah is only for Jewish uh, people, whereas Gentiles are welcome to uh, uh, gaze from a distance. Uh, they're welcome to go back to their churches oftentimes and, uh, and, uh, and not uh, mess things up for Jewish people. Uh, understandable, understandable, completely understandable. However, as, uh, as I said, uh, at Brands Online, we are, we are completely um, uh, opposed to this idea. And uh, the purpose for this discussion, this, this lesson, is in fact to see that this is opposed to what God has ordained within the scriptures for his people, that they not be uh, two people, but that they be one people. Now, Acts 15, uh, the centerpiece for divine invitation theology, uh, this centerpiece is also a centerpiece uh, for Christianity, and classical Christianity sees that Acts 15 was a place where there was a theological shift in the thinking of the disciples. 
the apostles. That, they, that here in Acts 15, uh, the, the first uh, inkling, the first uh, glimmer of the, uh, of the uh, emerging church, or the church uh, as they would call it, uh, um, coming out with, from underneath the shadow of Judaism itself uh, and becoming a distinct identity is being seen here. The first, the first glimmer of that is happening in Acts 15. Uh, so they would see that Acts 15 is the birth of Christianity as a distinct as a distinct entity, apart and distinct from Judaism. Uh, that it's no longer a Jewish entity, but a Christian entity. Um, in reinterpreting Acts 15 as they have, divine invitation theology proponents, proponents have gone back to this same old, tired, and demonstrably false view of what occurred in Acts chapter 15. Resting upon a wrong view of what the apostles did in Acts 15, divine invitation theology undermines the very inspired Torah. And I'll show you how, how this, this, uh, that this is an insidious attack upon the Torah itself. Let me explain it this way. Uh, if we go back and we look at Roman Catholicism, uh, they use Acts 15 as evidence for its doctrine of apostolic succession. Uh, now, apostolic succession is a teaching that originates uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, originates and uh, has its source in, in Matthew chapter 16, where, uh, where Yeshua, um, or what they say Jesus, uh, gave the authority uh, and, the, uh, and the leadership of the church, uh, hence, uh, ostensibly the Roman Catholic Church, uh, to Peter and the apostles, specifically Peter and then the apostles by, uh, by extension. And that he gave them the authority not only to, uh, not only to um, lead the church as his representatives, but also to uh, manage the church in the sense of making and and annulling laws, divine law. Uh, they would they would take the phrase uh, whatever you uh, bind on earth has been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth has been loose in heaven, and they would say Roman Catholicism says this is proof that that the church through Peter, the apostles, and all, each one of the popes and bishops that succeed them, apostolic succession. Uh, they, they have been given the divine authority to make law, to annul law, and that whatever they say on earth, God goes along with. Uh, they, could, uh, they could, for instance, uh, the very nature, the, the very day of worship, moving from uh, the seventh day to the first day of the week. Roman Catholicism says that they could do this because God granted them that authority. And they could, they could uh, keep all believers from worshiping on the seventh day because God gave them that authority uh, through Peter and the apostles. That's called apostolic succession. Interestingly, the Protestant Reformation repudiated uh, apostolic succession. Well, at least parts of it. At least the parts that they, could, uh, that they were opposed to. Namely, that the Pope and the bishops, the magisterium could, could, uh, uh, could tell you how to read and interpret the scriptures and say what it means, make new law, and abolish uh, what they said was old law. They said, no, no, uh, that couldn't happen. But they did believe, they did believe that the apostles continued to modify the law as they had observed Jesus modified the law. Of course, we would say that this is preposterous, that, that, uh, that Yeshua never uh, 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 abolished the Torah. His own words say, don't even consider it, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse, verse 17, don't even consider that he would abolish the Torah. And yet, 
That is what Protestant, the Protestant Reformation said that the apostles were given the authority to do. To modify the law. Acts 15 comes into this picture. Both Roman, both Catholicism, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism assumed that the apostles could make new law. And they read Acts 15 that way. Divine invitation theology reads it the same way. This is a grave error. One would expect Catholicism and Reformation Protestant, Protestantism to make such statements. It is a, remarkable to have Messianics say such things. There are only three possibilities for Acts chapter 15. One, the apostles were given authority to make new law. These four prohibitions they give are their authority to make new law. That they have been given not only the authority to make new law, but to abolish old law. Because they, in Acts chapter 15, it is clear, if it's read according to this interpretation, it is clear that they are abolishing certain commandments that already existed. And so, this would be the undoing. Only these four things are what we place upon you, is what the proponents of divine invitation theology will say about Acts 15. So, the, only, the first possibility is the apostles were given the authority to make new law. The second possibility, exclusive possibility, is Acts 15 simply records the apostles' actions, but they were not authorized by God. This is much like accounts of the, throughout Scripture where man makes the wrong choice, men get together, they, they incorrectly do something, and God simply records it for us in Scripture for our, for our edification so that we will not, we'll not do the same things. Uh, that's the second possibility. The third exclusive possibility is that that uh, the uh, that Acts 15 requires greater historical context to correctly understand it. The traditional Christian and divine in, uh, invitation theology interpretation of Acts 15 is cor is incorrect. This is our view that Acts 15 is not a record of the apostles giving new law. That it is not a record of the apostles simply making a mistake. But rather, we would hold that to correctly understand Acts chapter 15 and what's happening in Acts chapter 15, there is a need for greater historical context, which is what troubles us about how divine invitation theology has shifted on Acts 15. Because these are not things that they are, not, they are unfamiliar with. These are things that they have in the past correctly espoused. For me, the question... And for instance, for, uh, for Judea, normative Judaism, the question has always been, who is Israel? In response to the insidiousness of Hellenism, which appeared in the 3rd century before the Common Era, Judaism needed to make Jewish identity much more well-defined. They needed to have uh, uh, the faithful, the covenant people of God, be better defined. Uh, in the days of Hellenism and in the rise of the Greek empires. Hellenism is brought about by, first by Alexander's con uh, Alexander the Great's conquering uh, of the uh, known world, uh, extended uh, Greek thought, uh, the Greek language, and uh, Greek philosophy and idolatry throughout uh, the known world in the 3rd century BCE. Judaism was struggling against Hellenism because it was insidious, and needed to make a Jewish identity much more well-defined. Uh, 
with Hellenism, cultural identity markers began to disappear for Jews. Uh, certain things that made Jews look and act uh, Jewish to outsiders were being uh, smoothed over so that they could uh, fit in more more uh, more uh, more easily. We see that even in Jerusalem, uh, which which for anybody that's been to Israel today knows that Jerusalem is the is the uh, height of Judaism's uh, religious practice, uh, and compared to other parts of the country, is much more uh, religious and looks and acts differently. Uh, it, it, even Jerusalem in the, in in this time of Hellenism, uh, 2nd and 3rd century BCE, began to look and act Hellenistic and very Greek. Uh, they put in gymnasiums, they put in uh, uh, places for Greek theater, etc. Uh, people began to speak Greek, act Greek. On top of that, there were too, there were too many Gentiles who had been coming in because of uh, because uh, uh, the land of Israel was being ruled by the Seleucid Greeks. Uh, that there were many Gentiles living in the land, and it made it very difficult for the faithful members of Israel to identify those who were covenant members, members that is Israel, uh, and those who were not. Then about the time, uh, about 160, 167 BCE, before the Common Era, we have the Maccabean Revolt, where this is a revolt against Hellenism, a revolt against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the, uh, um, the Seleucid uh, king who was ruling over uh, um, that part of uh, the world, including the land of Israel. And uh, we know from the Maccabees, uh, this revolt, that one of the things that was used as a reminder of, of covenant um, of covenant faithfulness was the covenant mark of circumcision. That it became also became a cultural mark for community loyalty. Then, from the second century uh, BCE, from the before the Common Era on, circumcision becomes the cultural identity marker for those Gentiles who wanted to be a part of the covenant community. That is to be a part of Israel, so that they could be easily identified. When you examine the Greeks. Uh, uh, hatred and abhorrence for circumcision. You can see why this was such a was a was a was a, uh, was a well chosen identity marker for those who actually were covenant faithful, uh, who were going to be faithful to Israel, uh, including both Jew and Gentile. After that time, from the second century BCE on, Gentiles had to undergo ritual conversion to Judaism to be considered a part of the covenant community, to be a part of Israel. That ritual conversion. Uh, consisted of an agreement to live by both Torahs, and uh, the Talmud is very clear on this, the oral and the written. And that is what we would call, in reading this and in reading Galatians, the whole Torah. This is the, the whole law, not just what you can read, but also the, uh, what, what normative Judaism and what the Talmud speaks of being handed down uh, from Moses, uh, word of mouth, Moses to Joshua to the men of the great assemblies, and then through the, through the rabbis uh, to the rest of us. The next thing was ritual, convert, ritual, ritual circumcision for males, uh, a ritual ablution, immersion, they were, they were immersed, and, and in the days of the temple, they had to pay a temple tax. So these four items were required, were required part of ritual conversion to Judaism for a Gentile. Uh, they became, there's, there's an easy uh, shorthand for, for these, uh, to accept the whole Torah would be to say that someone had gone through ritual conversion, or to say that someone had been circumcised, or that they were circumcised, was to say that they had gone through ritual conversion as well. Uh, 
and, and those short name, uh, shorthand names became uh, used often. In fact, when we read in the apostolic scriptures the word circ- circumcision or circumcised, we are almost always, not always, but almost always reading about ritual conversion, not reading about the commandment for uh, for circumcision on the eighth day, uh, there are a few in there that will uh, that that you can spot pretty easily. Where it's speaking of uh, circumcision on the eighth day, for instance, Yeshua was circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, Paul speaks of being circumcised on the eighth day, and we see that uh, that Paul reaffirms uh, um, uh, in in the book of Acts uh, that about for circumcising on the eighth day. So it's not speaking of those uh, specifically, but every other place it is almost always speaking about ritual conversion when you read the word circumcision, not the actual physical uh, act of being circumcised. From the 2nd century BCE on, all those who were born of Jewish, who, who were born of a Jewish father or had undergone ritual conversion were identified as Israel and members of the covenant community. So, who's Israel? Everyone who's born of a Jewish father and everyone who had undergone ritual conversion were identified as Israel and members of the covenant community from the second century before the common era on. Uh, there, is, uh, there is talk about uh, um, Timothy in Acts chapter uh, 16 undergoing circumcision uh, that Paul would have uh, circumcised Timothy because his mother was Jewish, uh, uh, identifying uh, as, the modern, as modern Judaism does uh, that, um, that, that Jewishness is, is passed on through the mother. But this is, uh, this is actually absurd. Um, uh, and there's, it's well documented that uh, even into the second and third century uh, of the common era, that it was, still, uh, it was still passed on through the father, not through the mother. So Timothy would never have been considered a Jew uh, in, in, the sec- in the first century. Never, uh, he would have been considered a Gentile, not only because he was not circumcised, but also because his father was a Gentile. The Torah is very clear. We inherit our, uh, our heritage uh, through our father's line, not through, uh, not through the mother's line. So having a Jewish mother was something that came after the first century uh, as a definition for, for Jewishness. Uh, to be considered Israel, you had a father who was Jewish or had undergone ritual conversion uh, in, the, in, from, in, in the first century. Let's go to Acts 15 now, because I, I want to get into the scriptures now and discuss this. Um, go to Acts 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. We'll read the first five verses here. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles, and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, now step back into our into our historical uh, perspective here. Uh, certain men came from Judea, and then verse five, verse one, verse five. We say that the some of the sect of the Pharisees. So these are a group of Pharisees who are believers, members of the assembly, the congregation in Jerusalem of believers, followers of Yeshua. Uh, 
who said, uh, both in verse 1 and verse 5, that, that these people needed to be circumcised. These Gentiles need to be circumcised. In verse 1 they said, unless they were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What's the custom of Moses? Moses never described circumcising as a matter of, as a matter of, of, uh, of custom uh, for Gentiles, for males, uh, excuse me, for males uh, uh, that were uh, over the age of 8. Uh, eight days. We see, in fact, that circumcision described uh, that we might call the custom of Moses, or from what the Torah says, it speaks about uh, uh, males being circumcised at day eight, uh, not as adults. So here they're saying they need to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. So what we would recognize is this custom of Moses is not the Torah, but rather what people were saying was the custom of Moses. Uh, it, w- it was a matter of... of uh, of, of tradition, now, what we would say the oral Torah, passed down orally. But if they hadn't been, then what they're saying is that you cannot be saved. You can't be part of the covenant community. Remember, Judaism in the first century believed that only Jews had a right uh, to the world to come and that no Gentiles had any place in the world to come. Uh, and, if someone, and so they're logically assuming here that someone needs to be a part of, the, part of Israel to have a part in the world to come. And there's only way, one way to get, there's only two ways to become a part of Israel, to be born a part of Israel through a Jewish father or to go through a ritual conversion. So this is what they're saying. And then verse 5 it says, but some of the sect of Pharisees who who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Again, this is not saying that uh, this this is what they're commanding. You need to keep the Torah. Uh, It's that they need to keep all the Torah, the whole law, the whole Torah, which is, going, going again back to verse 1, the custom of Moses, that includes the oral law. So they're saying it's necessary for them to go through ritual conversion. And ritual conversion, remember the first thing of ritual conversion is an, an agreement to keep the whole law, both written and oral. In other words, to fall under the, uh, the um, auspices and the uh, guidelines of the... Uh, uh, rabbis and their interpretation of the Torah. Um, it's understandable, though. It is understandable for the Pharisees to see this point when you consider that only Israel has a part in the world to come. Uh, at, I mean, for us looking at it, we have to we have to say that uh, a man-made ritual. How can a man-made ritual make someone part of Israel? That is this man-made ritual conversion that's called circumcision. But remember, this is not the circumcision of, of the Torah, which is at the eighth day uh, of a child. Um, the, Fer- the Pharisees, like I say, the Pharisees' point is understandable. It's, it's well-grounded in a tradition, uh, traditional view of who is Israel, um, but it's incorrect. In the Torah, there are numerous references to the Ger Toshah, the sojourner who dwells among you. A Ger, or Gerian for plural, were always considered a part of Israel, but they were considered a part of Israel throughout the Torah by a ritual. There's no mention of a ritual anywhere in the Torah. How a Gentile can be considered a part of Israel. They were considered a part of Israel by simple fidelity to the God of Israel. In other words, it was observable that they were a part of Israel. Just as it was observable for a native-born, whether they were, if they were faithful to the covenant or not. Uh, 
so we see that throughout the Torah, many of the commandments, actually, you know, oftentimes, in the places you would see, to be most likely that you would see a division between native-born and, and uh, the Gentile or the Gair uh, who dwells among you, the, most, the places you would see that would be most likely to be a division, for instance, in the sacrifices, it specifically gives the commandments not as identity markers for the physical descendants of Jacob, but rather as the righteous, uh, righteous standard for all Israel, both the descendants of Jacob and the Gerim, the Gentiles that dwelled among them. An example is as Numbers chapter 15, uh, verse 13, and I'll read through verse 16. All who are native-born shall do these things in this manner. Now again, let me pause for a second. Remember, native-born is born with a with a... Um, Israelite, a descendant of Jacob, a father who's a descendant of Jacob. Okay, native-born are all those who were born of a father who is a descendant of Jacob. All who are native-born shall do these things in this manner: in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you, that's Ger Toshav, or whoever is among you throughout your generations and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. Now let me pause for a moment and reflect upon this for, uh, at, at its most extreme. Imagine uh, a Gentile dwelling among Israel, going into the tabernacle to, mo- to make an offering. Is there any place, anywhere among the people in the camp that is that the average Israelite can go into who is not a descendant of Aaron that is more holy than this and go into the presence of the Lord and offer an offering. No, there's not. So, the Lord accepts it. Hashem accepts the presence of this dear Toshav in his most holy place to offer an offering. Continue verse 15. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. An ordinance forever throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. One law and one custom. One law and one custom. Why one law for both the Gentile and the Jew? Why native-born, excuse me, not the, uh, the, the, the Gentile or the Ger Toshav and the native-born have one law, one law and one custom. And we see that that, that, that word ordinance there is the, weir, is the word chok. Uh, 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 and the word chok refers to, um, and, and the word one law is, is one, one Torah, uh, uh, the word chok, though, refers to uh, very uh, technical aspects of the Torah that are commandments that, that are not easily explained or explained away. Uh, they're basically the commandments that God tells us to do that are uh, without explanation that we do out of simple obedience. They make no logical sense. Uh, the red heifer, uh, the, the law of the red heifer is described as a chok. It is, uh, it is a is an ordinance that does not have um, any explanation other than that God demands it and requires it for his people. Uh, Numbers 15, 15, 13 through 16 is just one example of where the the gear, 
the, the Gentile who's dwelling in Israel and the native-born are given the same commandment. They're given the same commandments uh, that are obviously uh, the extreme. Uh, we, this follows, Numbers 15, ironically follows the commandment of Zitzit, uh, which is the, uh, the fringes uh, that, that so many today in Messianic movement would see as a Jewish identity marker as opposed to an identity marker for those who are um, following the God of Israel. Now, interesting thing about this word gear uh, and how it is being treated. Uh, the proponents, proponents of uh, divine invitation theology, as well as normative Judaism, look at this word gear and they go, listen, that doesn't mean Gentile. That's not talking about Gentiles. It's talking about people who used to be Gentiles, but actually went through ritual conversion, which, by the way, is... is uh, makes you wonder uh, whether divine invitation theology is promoting uh, Gentile conversion or not. It appears that they are, uh, as a means by which someone can be considered Jewish. Um, uh, however, the scriptures are very clear. That's not that One cannot change what they are. You are who you are. As Paul says, that if you were uh, of the circumcision, uh, then you should remain of the circumcision. If you are uh, of the uncircumcision, then you should remain at of the uncircumcision, so you don't you don't change your uh, your ethnic identity uh, simply by being a believer. Uh, but this word gear, uh, what what they're doing is they're drawing from this word gear and they say, listen, that doesn't mean Gentile; it means a proselyte, because the word in in Greek is proslutos. Around 270 of the, before the Common Era, uh, in the age when Hellenism was growing and the Greek language was throughout the known world a group of 70 Jewish scholars translated the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, into Greek. That Greek translation is called the Septuagint. And we, we, we identify it with, uh, with the Roman numerals LXX, the 70. Uh, it's, it is an extremely valuable translation. It gives us wonderful insights into origi- in the original Hebrew text. The, the earliest Hebrew text that we have today is from the, uh, is from the uh, 11th century, uh, the Common Era. That's the earliest complete Hebrew text that we have. Uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, that, that was it. Now the Dead Sea Scrolls were able to go back uh, to a time, uh, you know, 100 uh, uh, before the Common Era. Now it's this. Uh, but with the Septuagint, we actually have a glimpse into the Hebrew text as it was being read by these 70 scholars as early as 270 before the Common Era. So it's very valuable to us. Um, it was likely the Bible that was used by the majority of early believers, especially the Gentiles in Greek-speaking uh, congregations. Uh, the word gear simply means sojourner or journeyer, uh, someone who's not... Uh, it comes from the idea of, 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 uh, of, of traveling, uh, not, not fixed location. Uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't always identify covenant members. Uh, you know, Israel... Um, is uh, and members of Israel are called Ger, but there's also other Ger that aren't covenant members. You can easily identify, but you you can only identify it by context. So that so the translators of the Septuagint, when they began to translate from Hebrew into Greek, they they identified the covenant the times that the Ger was being used as a covenant member, as we've read in in Numbers chapter 15. And instead of simply bringing uh, another word in for that, uh, when they got to the word that word in in 
the, the word ger in Numbers 15 and other places, uh, they translated, they actually created a word, just like we do in English, we take two words and we slam them together and put a hyphen between them and make a new word. They, they created a word called proslutos. This word did not exist before the translating of the, of the Septuagint. It was a new word that they invented. Um, Prosolutos is the combining of, uh, of two words, pros, which means towards, and zermai, uh, uh, which means to come, so towards to come, or to come towards, and it indicates that Gentiles who had come towards and joined the covenant people. So it, whenever they came across Ger, they, instead of just saying, hey, they were wanderers, they were sojourners, they said, no, these people are covenant members, they've been joined to Israel, and the way that we're going to define them is we're going to say those who have come and toward and joined us. That they joined the covenant people. Over time, as, as happens, over time the word became indicated just like our word proselyte to mean anybody that converted to any other religion. That's where we get the word proselyte from. Proslutos becomes proselyte. So, when you read in the uh, Jewish Publication Society, uh, Tanakh, in the English versions, uh, Stone Chumash, or a... a uh, um, an art scroll uh, uh, Tanakh you will read when you come to this words like in Numbers 15 and other places where Ger is seen as a covenant member you're going to read the word and the proselyte some other versions use and the convert um, the question is did they go through ritual conversion and the answer is ritual conversion didn't exist as a means by which to join the covenant community of Israel until the second century before the common era. So that means that anytime you run across the word ger, you're coming across simple Gentiles who are followers of the God of Israel. Uh, excuse me, not anytime you run across the word ger, but within context, if they're covenant members, they're Gentiles, they're not converts, they're not, they hadn't gone through a ritual conversion. Step back into Acts 15 so we can continue this. Let's go to Acts 15, verse 5 again and read that. But some of the sects of the Pharisees who believed rose, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. That is, to go through ritual conversion. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when, they were, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the, of the good news and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of of the Lord, Messiah Yeshua, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Uh, Acts 15, 5 through 11. Now, traditionally, this is read to say, look, why are you making them keep the Torah? Obviously, that's been done away with. Remember back in Acts chapter 10? Remember, God came down from, uh, gave me a vision, came down from heaven. I saw that uh, all these uh, unclean animals in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, in a, uh, a sheep being let down. Uh, obviously, the law, that's indicating the law has been done away with. Gentiles uh, are now part of us because the Torah didn't include Gentiles. Uh, and so, why are you trying to put the yoke of the law back on these people? That's the traditional view. Unfortunately, divine invita invitation theology takes that same view. And, and, and this is <laughs> in direct contradiction 
to the scriptures themselves and undermine the very nature of divine inspiration. Peter, in Acts chapter 10, is given a vision of clean and unclean animals let down in a sheet. He's told to rise and eat by a voice. Peter refuses and says he has never eaten anything common or unclean. Three times the sheet is let down. Each time he refuses, we never read where Peter eats. Then we're told that Peter is given the meaning of his vision. And that is that who God has accepted is not unclean, is not common. This goes back to what we read in Numbers chapter 15. God accepted the Ger Toshav into his very presence to offer an offering. So what happened between that time, the time in Numbers chapter 15 and Acts chapter 10? What had happened is the Maccabean revolt, Hellenism, Jewish response to that was we've got to make sure that Gentiles don't come in. We've got to keep them separate. We can't count on them. They have to be converted. They have to go through a ritual conversion before we can accept them as being a part of Israel. They are unclean. God's response in Acts chapter 10 was, it is not a man-made ritual that makes a man clean or unclean. Here in Acts chapter 15, verse 5, the Pharisees see all Gentiles entering the congregations. There's tons of them. They're coming in. They're obviously, there's, their numbers eventually are going to overwhelm the Jewish members of these congregations. They see a problem. First, they see that the problem is rest of Judaism is not going to accept the followers of Yeshua if there are Gentiles among them who have not gone through a ritual conversion. They're not going to see these unconverted Gentiles as covenant members. They're going to see them as dangerous and unclean usurpers. Why, they might even go into the temple grounds itself. As we see in Acts chapter 21, this is a certain, Acts chapter 22, this is certainly a concern of normative Judaism in the first century. These Pharisees see this problem. They recognize this problem. They know this is a problem. Beloved, this is the same problem we see today. Normative Judaism says, Gentiles can't be a part of Israel. If you want to be a part of Israel... In their, what they would say is, you have to become Jewish. And the only way that you can become Jewish is through ritual conversion if you weren't born, as they say, from a Jewish mother. So, the same problem exists. Some Messianic congregations, in a desire, some Messianic leaders, in a desire to be more accepted by normative Judaism, are deeply concerned that Gentiles not be seen as members of the covenant of Israel. In these Pharisees' mind in Acts chapter 15, it's a small matter for Gentiles to just go through and fulfill the culturally accepted ritual conversion process. Remember, you know, it's, it's no big deal, but just remember the circumcision, uh, uh, just keep the whole law. Look, this is just what you were going to do anyway, so just go through with it. You know, in their mind, it's not, it's not, it's not a big deal. Just go through it. 
it'll be done with. That way, a nice and clean package will say, look, all these Gentiles came in, but they've been converted. As Yeshua says in Matthew chapter 23, when he's talking about Pharisees, you'll go around the world for one convert. So, this will be, this will actually be a good news, very good news. Look, Gentiles are coming into the kingdom, they're converting to Judaism, and we're all one big happy family. Uh, nobody unclean in our midst. Uh, this is the same thing that had come up with Gentiles in Galatia that Paul deals with. Paul, however, is an insightful Torah scholar. He, understa- he understood deeply and intimately that the identity of the covenant community that, and that covenant community members could never be founded upon a man-made ritual. Just like, just like some today look at the, at, at the, uh, the uh, obnoxiousness of, of conversion in some churches where uh, people raise a hand and a prayer, is prayer, and a prayer is prayed with them and they're now part of the covenant. A walk an aisle. Not to dispute that people are saved. That they are, that they are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light by prayer. By acceptance. By taking the yoke of the kingdom. But the idea that that marker... That identity. When did you raise your hand? When did you accept Jesus as your Lord? Listen, those are, those are man-made... That is man-made language. Paul understood the man-made ritual could not transfer people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that their identity could never be tied up in a man-made ritual. Peter, in remembering Acts chapter 10, remembers that that God accepts not on the basis of man-made rules. What were those man-made rules that kept Gentiles separate? It's not the Torah, beloved. If you go back and you read the Torah, again and again we see that same word, ger, the native-born and the ger, living side by side, sharing in the covenant community. Now, the rules, as they're described in the Talmud, in uh, beginning in Shabbat 13b of the Babylonian Talmud, are the 18 measures. These 18 measures, which all 18 are not mentioned in the Talmud, these 18 measures are what described a greater level of cleanness and uncleanness than the Torah. It was these 18 measures between 10 and 20 years before, before the Common Era that were enacted and were, and were in effect all the way through uh, this period in the first century that defined that Gentiles could not be eaten with, could not be in the presence with, you had to keep them at arm's length because they were unclean. That they could not be a part of the covenant community unless they went through ritual conversion. Now an interesting thing comes up when we discuss this traditional view and the view of divine invitation theology of verse 10. Acts chapter 15 verse 10 says, Now therefore, why do you test God, Peter speaking, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? What's this yoke? Well, the traditional view is the yoke is the burden of the law. It's the law. Don't you dare put the law on them, Peter's saying. Is that what Peter's saying? Is that... Is divine invitation theology correct in siding with Christian in this traditional Christian explanation, identifying the yoke as the, as the Torah? 
Yes, it's true. The word yoke is used in rabbinic language to refer to the Torah, but it's also used to refer to the interpretive rules that the rabbis expected for their disciples. In other words, the whole law, both written and oral. And yes, throughout the Talmud, the word yoke is used for that. No, this is not speaking of the Torah. And the Torah can tell us that it's not. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 10. And I'll read through verse uh, 14. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which, are, statutes which are written in the book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, for this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Paul quotes this in, in Romans chapter 10. The Torah is not too difficult. It's not too hard. It's not too far away. Divine invitation theology says that it is. That it's really hard. That it's hard to do it. That it's not enough just to rest on the Shabbat. You have to rest this way. And they define this way as, as the way that rabbinic Judaism defines it. Now, I find great value in rabbinic Judaism. I found great value in the traditions of the elders. But they are not binding upon me. More times than not, I will side with the rabbis in deciding how I will keep the commandments of God. But they are not the commandments of God. The yoke that is put on the neck of the disciples that they couldn't bear were the 18 measures. The things that separated Jew and Gentile, extreme separation between Jew and Gentile, that separated between members of Israel, be, between the people of the land, uh, Am Haaretz, and the, and the more uh, 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 pious Pharisees. These laws that separated between men, that were not given by God, these were the things. These 18 measures were the things. In the, in the, about 20 before the common era, we see the disciples of Halil murdered, murdered by the Sakari. Uh, when they come to meet with the house of Shammai, over, an agree, over a disagreement over these 18 measures, the house of Hillel were murdered because of the 18 measures. And then they took a vote and the 18 measures passed. These are, these are laws that divide. These are laws that separate. These are not the Torah. Go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep His commandments... For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Is Peter saying that the commandments of God are a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither we nor our fathers could bear? Is it too difficult, as divine invitation theology says? Is it difficult to keep the Torah? They're contradicting the scriptures. It is not too difficult. To those who love him, 
and are called according to his purpose, they remain in his will. And his will is to obey him. His commandments are not burdensome. They bring life. They bring peace. They bring rest. What are, the, what are these? These 18 measures. Where did they come from? Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 25 says, Therefore I also gave them up to statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their ritual gifts in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire that I might make them desolate that they might know that I am the Lord. What are these statutes? These are men's laws. These are men's laws that are not good and judgments they could, they could not live by. God turned them over to this yoke of commandments that could not be kept, that could not be kept easily. These man-made rules and regulations that separate people. God turned them over because of sin. They are not the commandments of the Torah. Peter is the one who had the vision in Acts 10. He's the one that speaks here in this council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. He knows that the burden is a man-made burden. The rules of the 18 measures that place division between Jew and Gentile. Skip down to verse 20 of Acts 15. Let's talk about... Uh, actually, we'll go ahead and read from 11 on through 21 uh, and, and then get into these uh, four prohibitions. Acts 15, 11. But we, but we believe that through the grace of Messiah Yeshua, our Lord Messiah Yeshua, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after, that, after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. He's speaking of what happened in Acts 10 with Cornelius. And then, with, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will rebuild its ruin. This is from Amos, and he's talking about the adding of the uh, all nations. And I will set it up, verse 17, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Gentiles called by his name. Hmm. Verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. Notice how James says, Gentiles who are turning to God. He sees this as a as a movement that's something that has a beginning that it's going to be ongoing not as a launching place for ritual conversion he's speaking against ritual conversion here's these these four prohibitions though let's look, let's look at them again and here, here's the question that I have and, this, and I'm, ba I'm baffled over the position of divine invitation theology over, over these four things. That they could think that the apostles, I, I expect this from those who come out of Catholicism and through, through, uh, through the Protestant Reformation, could hold to this position. 
But I baffled that those in a messianic perspective could believe that the apostles are able to overturn the Torah. We're given very specific instructions that the Gentiles, the native-born and the gear, that the native-born Israelite and the gear, the Gentiles, will have the same commandment. In Exodus chapter 16 it says, No one can eat of the Passover unless he is circumcised. In the days of, in the, days of, uh, of the first century, no one could eat of the Passover unless they were circumcised. Paul tells them, if you have circumcision, then Messiah is worth nothing to you. Was he telling them not to go get circumcised so they could eat of the Passover? Of course not. If he was, and if the apostles are in chapter 15 of Acts, undoing the very commandments of God, this is a very troubling thing. This is a troubling concept that undermines the inspired word of God. Do they have the right to undo the commandments of God? Who gave them that authority? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. And I'll read through verse 2. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God, the Lord God of your fathers, is giving to you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from, take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Don't add to it. Don't take it away. Are the apostles... Do the apostles have the authority to add to the commandments of God? Where do they receive this authority? Is it in Matthew chapter 16, as the Roman Catholic Church believes? Is that what divine invitation theology believes? That the apostles had the right to come up with new law to undo the established eternal law of God? Well, that's the message of, of traditional Christianity. What a slippery slope this is. Did Joseph Smith have the right to have new law? He received a sign from heaven, he says. He had visions, he says, just as Peter did. Who's to say that his isn't valid as well? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32. And I'll read through chapter 13, verse 10. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which your father, which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away the evil from your midst. If your brother or the son of your mother or the son of your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend who is, at, uh, who is as your own soul secretly entices you saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your, nor your fathers. 
of the gods of the people who are around you, near to you, or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him, nor listen to him, nor shall you, your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with the stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, can we imagine that the apostles should be allowed to escape being stoned if they are adding to or taking away from the very commandments of God? It is understandable that, Christ, that traditional Christianity can say these things because they believe in dispensations or the transference of covenant obligation from one people to another but those who hold that the scriptures are united cannot say this and yet divine invitation theology has taken this position how is it possible that the apostles could possibly have come up with new law undoing what is established eternal law go to Ezekiel chapter 33 I'll start in verse 25 Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, and he's speaking to Israel here, you eat meat with blood, you lift up your eyes towards idols and shed blood. Shall you then possess the land? Possess the land? You rely on the, your sword, you commit abominations, and you defile one another's lives. Shall you then possess the land? And uh, in our Galatians study, we took this passage, and also Acts 15 and Acts 21, and we correlated the four prohibitions to this, these same four prohibitions here in Ezekiel chapter 33. What are these four prohibitions? These four prohibitions are broad categories to give a basic outline of the Torah. James says, those who have begun to turn, Gentiles who have begun to turn to God. He's giving them the four basic categories, the, four, the broad outline. Instead of resorting to unbiblical divisions of the Torah, such as divine invitation theology and classical Christianity, that is, this is a moral, ritual, and civil law, which the scriptures never define, Instead, there's broad categories. Why does Christianity and divine invitation theology break the Torah into moral, ritual, and civil? And the reason why is so that they can exclude some commandments for keeping, at least for Gentiles. They do it in order to break down our obligation. Our obligation of love to keep and obey. Instead, these four categories, as James lists them here in Acts chapter 21, these four broad categories that are mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 33 as applying to Israel, not just to Gentiles. These are not seven Noahide laws, which is an invention of the second century. These four, prog- pr- these four categories define the Torah. And their purpose is to promote obedience to all the commandments. That's what James is doing. And the key verse, and the proof of this, is found in chapter 15 of Acts, verse 21. For Moses has throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. These four prohibitions give an outline for righteous living, 
in the same way that traditional Judaism has a starting place. The converted, uh, the person that goes through ritual conversion in, in, in the Talmud, they're told that after they go through these four steps, taking the whole law, both written and oral Torah, uh, going through uh, rituals, uh, going through circumcision uh, for males, uh, being immersed, and then uh, paying the temple tax. That as they, uh, after, after they have gone through this whole process, that they're Israelite of Israelites, then they're, be, then they're to be told a light commandment and a heavy commandment. A place to start. These are a place to start. Why? Because they're going to be in the synagogue. They're going to be reading the scriptures. The Torah. That's what he says. They're going to be reading the scriptures every Shabbat. And in the synagogue, what are they going to hear? They're going to hear the Torah. Are they going to then stand up and go, does this apply to me? Of course not. That's absurd. These Gentiles who are turning to God are going to hear the commandments of God and know that this is the righteous standard of those who love Him, those covenant members. This is the reality of the real reality of the Girtoshaf, the sojourner who dwells among you. The Gentile who's a covenant member. Here's their real reality. They're a part of Israel. Where does James have them? He has them in a synagogue every Shabbat. They're a part of Israel. They're learning the Torah alongside the native-born. They're all Israel together. That's why Acts 15, 21 is the key verse to the passage. Not verse 20 that lists the four prohibitions. How do Gentiles become a part of Israel? If they don't come up, become a part of Israel by ritual conversion, if they don't come up, become part of Israel by keeping the law, as, as, uh, as uh, both normative Judaism and Christianity says, well, you, if you're going to start, you've got to keep it all. That's how you become Jewish. That's not how Gentiles become a part of Israel. Paul tells us, Paul, the Torah scholar, who knows this, the Torah by memory, elucidates on those passages that we read again and again throughout the Torah about the native-born and the gear dwelling alongside one another, keeping the same commandments. How is it possible? Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul's writing to, this, to the believers of Ephesus, where later Timothy will spend the majority of his time ministering. And he made, and he, and you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to this course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our, of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which, which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places of Messiah Yeshua, that in the ages to come he might show the exceedingly rich, exceeding riches of his grace, in his kindness towards us in Messiah Yeshua. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and, not of, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Not by ritual, not by man-made tradition or commandments are we joined, but simply 
by grace through faith. Not by ethnic origin. Not by man-made ritual. Let's go down to... This. Let's continue reading verse, uh, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by, that, by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here's, here's what Paul's saying. You were Gentiles in the flesh. You've been called uncircumcision by those who are circumcised, the Jews of the day. You were without Messiah. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's affirming the, the Pharisees' statement. Apart from Israel, there is no hope. Apart from Israel, there is no place in the world to come. Only Israel has a place in the world to come. This word uh, "commonwealth" I, in English is very uh, misleading, because we're 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 uh, we're familiar with the the use of the word in relationship to those who were of of of, uh, of the commonwealth, or excuse me, those former colonies of England and the United Kingdom. The word "commonwealth" comes in from that, saying that well, there's the same king, but you still have different laws. You have different society. You have different nations. Uh, Canada is a commonwealth of uh, is a member of the Commonwealth of England. Um, uh, Australia, uh, where they, they give fealty to uh, to the uh, king or queen of England, and yet they still have their own uh, government, they have their own laws, they have their own nation. Uh, they're not common citizens. Um, so that word is mis is misrepresented here in English by using the word commonwealth. The word is is not commonwealth. It is uh, uh, politeia, and and it doesn't mean at all what the word commonwealth in English means as it's used today. Uh, the word politeia is where we get the word uh, um, uh, uh, political. Uh, it has to do with uh, citizenship. It is specifically speaking of city. It comes from uh, um, the word that we get the word city from. It refers to citizenship, having all the rights and responsibilities of the citizens of a community. It is making a direct reference to the covenant community of Israel. Here, Paul's using a saying, you had no citizenship with Israel. Apart from Hashem's gracious work, none of us have any hope. Go to verse 13 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. But now, in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off had been brought near by the blood of Messiah. This is sacrificial language. This is the language of the temple. You who are kept apart. You who are on the other side. You who are being held at bay. Far off, now been brought near by the blood of Messiah. How is it that we have been brought near by the blood of Messiah? The 18 measures kept us far off. And still do today. But the blood of Messiah brings us near. This is the very meaning of the word uh, that the scholars of the Septuagint use. Prosolutos, brought near. Brought near. But not by ritual conversion. You know the, the, the power of this in, in Paul's day. Paul making this case. The power of this as an argument against ritual conversion. And without knowing the background of ritual conversion, how confusing this passage could be. They're just words otherwise. Do you see how the words have this meaning? This is not brought near by ritual conversion. Not brought near by a tradition 
or a man-made ritual, but, but only by the blood of Messiah. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, speaking of Messiah, who has, both, has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished his flesh enmity. That is the law of commandments. The word contained in ordinances. That is the word dogma. And it refers to, dogma refers to man-made ordinances. In every usage in the scriptures, in the Greek text, every usage refers to man-made ordinances. He has broken down the enmity, man-made ordinances, so as to create in himself a new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. How are Gentiles made clean? Well, they were never unclean in God's economy. They were either a part of Israel or they were condemned because they were not. Once a Gentile has been joined to Israel through the work of Messiah, he is a part of Israel. He is not condemned. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Messiah Yeshua himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of the God and the Spirit. Gentiles, who had no chance, no hope, no ritual could make them Jewish. God has now, through grace, joined them to Israel. So they are no longer stronger strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. Oh, there's that citizens word again. Fellow citizens. Sum polites. Fellow citizens. Sum polites means having the same citizenship. As anyone knows, if you are a citizen, you have the same covenant rights, whatever that citizenship is. You have the same rights and the same obligations. No one is above or beneath the law. Let's continue in chapter, Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, mis- prisoner of Messiah Yeshua, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard the dispensation of grace of God which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Messiah. Here's the mystery, which in ages past was not made known to the sons of men. Here it is. As is now being revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and his prophets. What is it? That Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise of Messiah through the good news stewardship. Gentiles become fellow heirs. Not just citizens, now fellow heirs. Fellow heirs? Ezekiel speaks of this. See, he says, made known. It wasn't made known in the past. But now it's being made known through his holy apostles and prophets. Gentiles, heirs. Not just the native-born are heirs. Not just heirs of the promise and the covenant promises. But true heirs. Ritual conversion can't do it. All that can do it is faith and the work of Messiah. 
an equality of citizenship does not exist where there are different citizenship rights and obligations. Not only does sociology teach us this, the scriptures are teaching us this. When divine invitation theology, traditional Christianity, and traditional Judaism, and others seek to divide Jew and Gentile, no matter what the reason, it is an attack on the very plan of God. God intends that we be one. One citizenship. One king. One people. One Torah. That is the definition of Echad. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And that's Yeshua's prayer, John chapter 16, verse six, 17, verse 16 through 22. That they may be one, as we are one. There is only one way to define Echad for the people of God. And that it is we have one king, that we are one people, and that we have been given one Torah. Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you for your blessings upon us that we have been joined to you, that we have been joined to the people of Israel, that it is not by ethnicity, but it is by the work of Messiah on our behalf. I thank you for those who study your word and see it as a united whole. And I pray this in Yeshua's name. This is a prayer after study from the... Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud. We thank you, O Hashem our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established our portion with idlers. For we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. We toil, and they toil. We toil and receive a reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run and they run. We run to the life of the world to come. And they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, And you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for us, we will trust in you.